I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hi there and welcome to The Pink Elephant Podcast where we discuss the most undiscussed issue in the body of Christ today. Now despite all we know, it can feel like there is something missing in our faith experience. I felt like it was a bit of a different tact on my part in the first episode of this season to kind of zero in on one verse and then kind of zoom out again. But I find myself doing this again for this episode. So I guess it's kind of a new thing for me. So maybe get used to it. Anyway, in this month's episode, I want to focus on this verse, Acts 1 verse 8, which says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, I'm just going to jump right in. At this point in the biblical narrative, Jesus has gone through the pain of the cross, miraculously risen again, and he's just about to ascend into heaven. He responds to a question from the disciples about the restoration of Israel. And this verse is a part of his kind of bigger answer. He tells them that it's not for them to know the times that the Father plans to do such things, but they will receive power. It is quite literally the last thing he is known to have said to the disciples before he ascends. And it's the subject of this podcast episode, specifically power and mainly in reference to the Holy Spirit. This was a huge deal for the disciples. It was a huge deal for all Israelite people. They had heard about the Spirit of God, maybe not as much as the law or the presence of God, but they knew of the Spirit's presence in the creation narrative. And the next time they hear about the Spirit of God in the Old Testament was when God's Spirit filled Bezalel, the son of Uri, in Exodus 31, whom he enabled with the skill of craftsmanship, which I think is just a kind of cool thing that the Holy Spirit clearly can do, but yeah, I just haven't thought about a lot. Anyway, suffice to say that the disciples knew of the Spirit, but there may have also been uncertainty for them to know exactly what this would look like, to have the Spirit come upon them, and then for this same Spirit to impart a type of power. So what exactly did Jesus mean when he told them that they would receive power? The implication of this sentence is that Jesus at least meant that this power had a strong connection with the role of being a witness. And the way it's written is, you know, pretty much saying that, right? And this word witness is quite literally a legal sense, like a witness to a crime or a witness that you bring up to prove someone's innocence. So Jesus is telling them that the primary function of this power being imparted upon them was to give them the ability to witness to him, I guess in some ways to prove him, to to evidence his presence. Now, traditionally, like, well, I guess I can say that even when I grew up, the word witness, I, I'd never heard of it apart from the idea of evangelism. You know, like you'd hear people say things like, we witness to our friends or we be a good witness. Um, and in some ways was often demonstrating the moral standpoint of what being a Christian is and therefore to shine that kind of light, right? So it's, it's mainly about evangelism, about 
showing people God, right? Now, but the word itself doesn't necessarily imply this uh, alone. Like it's not exclusive. It simply says that we are his witnesses. It likely means that we're a display of Jesus's presence in the world and even his presence in the life of his church. It probably means a display of his grace, which is consistent with Ephesians 2.7. And it probably talks about good works as well, because that is also a big part of our demonstration. You know, that's something that is spoken about often in the New Testament about having good works and doing good works, you know. So there's a good chance that witness means a lot of things, like a lot of things that we are testifying to about Jesus. So this is kind of the definition that I'm coming up with. This is my creation, right? So it may not be accurate, but it's just what I think works. The definition of a witness would be to say that we are the world's proof that Christ is alive and active and he is very much present in this world, still working through us, proving through us that he is able to do amazing things and he's alive and he's active and, okay, I've expanded that definition too much. You get what I'm saying? We are the world's proof that Christ is alive and active. We are that proof. Okay, so moving along, what does that power look like? We've talked about witness, but what about the power? What does it look like? Well, it would be foolish for us not to consider the Pentecost, which is in Acts 2. So, you know, Jesus is literally saying, wait for this power that will come upon you via the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 2, it happens. So we should look at what actually happens there to shed light on the nature of this power. So firstly, if you remember, there are these violent sounds. There's wind and fire and tongues and other languages and, you know, it sounds really vibrant and active and, and, and loud and, yeah, like sounds like a place that I probably wouldn't want to go very often. But I, I, I understand the miraculousness of what's going on there. And you can see how for Pentecostals the idea of power is often associated with manifestation and the miraculous because, you know, this is what was happening there. This was what was happening when this power came upon and and tongues is obviously a very big part of what happens there and it's a very big part of Pentecostalism. The point is the Pentecost does point to the fact that power is inclusive of divine manifestations. Now, all of that said was just an introduction so that I can move on to talking about the pink elephants because there is this pink elephant. It's a sign that we have a little bit of a lack of depth on this matter. And it might even be a big part of the reason we are not experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit as we would like to. So here it is. I'm going to name three and then we're going to unpack it. Number one, we have often majored on the power in Acts 1.8 but we've minored on the witness. Number two, our understanding of this power that is spoken of in Acts 1, 8, probably demonstrates our own distorted relationship with power. Number three, all of this demonstrates something of how we lack in our view and how we relate to the Holy Spirit. All right, so let's talk about the first one. We have often majored on the power and not the witness. So let's for a moment consider witness as evangelism because it does include that too. 
Did you know that the statistics for Christians sharing Jesus with non-believers is actually quite low? I vaguely recall being at a conference and being told that under 10% of Christians will actually share the gospel. There was a study done in 2012 by Lifeway Research that said that 61% of churchgoers had not shared the gospel with anyone in the last six months. 12% said they didn't even feel comfortable sharing their faith at all. So they're probably not going to do it, right? So that's already equating to like 73%. Now it goes on and it is old stats. I mean, we are now in the 2023, but it's just to give you a picture. It's a fairly well-known kind of fact that our engagement level on evangelism isn't very high, right? The church makes all sorts of efforts to motivate its members to share the gospel too because they know these stats. Church leaders know these stats. They run programs. There's courses for you to gain confidence. And, you know, often the big part of what Christians will say that they struggle with is that they don't know what to say or they also don't always fully comprehend what the gospel is in order to be able to share it, right? So all of that, you know, there's stuff to, you know, help with all of that. Um, messages, you know, we hear lots of messages about sharing the gospel with our friends and, the, and, and of course, there's events that, they, that are often run by churches so you can bring your friends. And, of course, they get people up on stage to share how they shared the gospel with someone that week. They give collective praise and, and reward to those who evangelize. And, and sometimes they even give position and leadership to people who evangelize. By the way, I'm not actually implying that any of this is wrong. I'm just stating the fact. This is what is going on. And behind the scenes inside the Christian leadership world, there's even more. There's like books that are dedicated to the topic. There's conferences. There is, um, you know, if a church is doing really well at being missional, often that person who leads that church will write a book about it and they'll share their philosophy and, um, and what formula worked for them and what strategy they used at their church. And, and you know what? So much of it is actually brilliant. Like the Alpha program, like the Alpha program is just incredible. It's such a, a, a great, straightforward, approachable way of sharing the gospel with people, right? Anyway, my point is to say that there is a lot of activity that goes on in churches, outside of churches, in leadership communities that is geared towards moving church communities into becoming missional communities. Now, so much of these activities really, really, really do help, right? So I'm not saying it doesn't help. But sometimes we also can overcomplicate evangelism, right? Like, you know, the average believer like feels so much pressure about saying the right thing as though evangelism is about words, like it's about saying the exact right poignant statement so that people get it, right? But, I mean, so much of what is happening in a conversation is really by the Holy Spirit. Like even these podcasts, right? Like I've had like listeners come back to me and say, that was amazing, that was so awesome. And I'll often be recording it and thinking, this is the clunkiest thing I've ever done. It feels so awkward and not eloquent and I don't have very high hopes for what it will achieve in a person's life and yet the Holy Spirit right the Holy Spirit is the one that makes a difference because the Holy Spirit can make you hear things that were meant for only you even if I didn't say it like that's the whole point like 
there is such a pressure like to be eloquent and 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 so you know believers in churches will see these professional preachers and like evangelists and and stuff and think that they got to be like that to share God with their friends. And here's the other thing, the success stories of those people who get up and talk about how they walked into Woolworths and walked into a grocery shop and then that person became a Christian on the spot and you know that oh man, the number of stories that I've heard, right? You know, like someone was sitting in a chair and was bored and was like, hey, God, you know, help me preach the gospel to this person and says one word and then that person starts crying. And, you know, actually all of those stories really isolate a lot of Christians because that is a level of confidence that maybe the average Christian doesn't even have in any aspect of life. Like I don't have the confidence to walk up to any person on the street and talk about any topic, let alone evangelism. So when you hear people get up and talk about that kind of stuff, I immediately go, well, I can't relate to that. I'm just, I feel guilty and I feel ashamed that God hasn't made me this way, but he hasn't made me this way for a reason, right? Anyway, the point I'm trying to bring us back to is that the power is supposed to help us with the witness. It's a core function of us having the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe that's no surprise to you, like, but besides the fact that I don't necessarily hear many teachings on how to rely on the Holy Spirit in sharing the gospel with others, there is also this really important side fact that I haven't stated yet. Our focus when it comes to this power is often not witnessing at all. The truth is we often interpret this power as something entirely different. Have you ever been to a conference and there's a preacher who is practically yelling and your friend that you're attending the conference with turns to you after the message and says something to the effect of, that was amazing, whoa, that was such a powerful message, that preacher was so powerful. And you kind of agree because you really haven't had a chance to think anything else. And then you look down at your notes and you realize that you haven't written down a word. There's still just a heading at the top of the page and there's no Bible verses. There's no, there was no revelation for you to write down. So what was powerful about it then? Now, I'm not saying that the preacher didn't have something great to say. All I'm trying to say is this, is that sometimes instead of interpreting this power as this ability to witness We interpret the power as things like charisma, especially in leaders. There are very few globally known preachers that don't have charisma. That doesn't mean to say that they are good preachers, but charisma is something we are drawn to and we are often manipulated by it and we ought to be careful of it because of the fact that it makes us presume that that's the power of the Holy Spirit instead of that daily power that might just help us tell people about Jesus. Sadly, sometimes the very charisma we are attracted to on stage turns out to be the exact behaviors we would deem bullying behind closed doors. And even if you're not into the big, loud, yelly, passionate preachers, and you might be more into the thoughtful, considerate, temperate, preachers. The fact is, even that is a type of charisma. And behind closed doors, what that might actually be seen as is false humility, a breeding ground for hypocrisy. And in truth, 
false humility, which I no doubt will do an episode on because of I've had some recent experiences with this and I'm telling you God is working in me because I definitely have been deceived by false humility too many times, is actually very damaging. Like false humility is damaging. So if that's what you've perceived as the power of the Holy Spirit, you equally could be deceived as the person who sees power as like yelling, right? Okay, you get what I'm trying to say. So what is power? Among the descriptions that are given for the word dunamis, which is what is translated here as power in Acts 1.8, are words like ability, strength, moral power. I mean, that's one that we probably don't talk about, do we? Excellence of soul. And of course, miracles. Dunamis is a very full word. A friend of mine once relayed to me a story of this his own pastor, meeting another pastor, who he described as anointed, right? It's a very interesting thing to say. In my friend's efforts to understand what anointed meant to his pastor, he observed that this other pastor was basically an authoritarian and was someone to be feared. But his own pastor saw it as power. Authority, particularly that which is positionally given, is another way in which we interpret power. And who would blame us? Since a person who has authority usually has the power to choose and direct in ways that others don't. But is that what Jesus was talking about too? I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 20 verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. See, in this verse, what it's saying is that lording over, which some perceive authority to be, is not a sign of the power of the Spirit. This is yet another way we interpret power. The power of the Holy Spirit is not necessarily force. In fact, I don't even know why I said necessarily. It's not force. The only time I recall such an authority in reference to the Holy Spirit is in Luke 10 verse 19 where it says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power, dunamis, of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. That's the only time I've ever heard it talked about as force. So let's go deeper. We can't go deeper on this topic of power, whether we were talking about church leadership or the Holy Spirit, without confronting this next point, which I breeze past as point number two earlier in the podcast. Our interpretations of power and often our incorrect or one-sided interpretations of power Reveal our relationship with power. Okay, so I can hear how that sounded, right? And I can hear what you're probably thinking. Ah, here we go again. Mel is talking highly theoretically. And what in the world could she be talking about? What in the world could a relationship with a conceptual idea like power be or look like? Okay, let's start really basic, okay? Not because I think you guys are dumb. I think you're very smart. But basic is a good place to start. You have a child and a parental figure. Either the child is subservient to the power and authority that parent has or they war against it. Some of you are nodding your heads because you literally have children like this. There are many factors that contribute to whether a child wars against or accepts power. 
But some of the factors at play is whether the child perceives the power of others as a threat and a loss of power to themselves, right? And whether a child sees their own loss of power as a threat might depend on things like how much they are shamed or guilted or that kind of thing. So yes, that is a demonstration of the relationship with power, a child and how they respond to authority. Do they perceive that when someone else has power over me, that I lose power? Is it a threat for me to lose power? Does that kind of make sense? None of you can respond to me anyway. I'm assuming that makes sense. Okay, let's get more complex. When a person has experienced a dangerous kind of vulnerability, I mean like a threatening kind, vulnerability really gets emotionally interpreted as weakness, right? So weakness and power, which is how they perceive the person who aggressed against them to be, like they perceive that person as the powerful one, and often the time they are, are like opposite ends of a continuum. Often that leads the victimized person to seek out power, particularly since that type of power is seen as a means of protecting oneself. So in my case, I believed that if I became somebody, a somebody, you know what I mean? Like someone significant, someone important with accolades and success and respect and all that kind of stuff, that I would create enough distance so that nobody would ever hurt me like that again, that I would never feel weak. So that's what gave me a sense of power was being a person who kind of, you know, had success, right? Success made me feel powerful. Now I've heard other people talk about things like getting obsessed with fitness and being physically strong as a form of protection. I've heard others say that even overeating and then sabotaging physical health by being unattractive is a form of protection. So all of these things are done so that a person is able to not feel weak. So you see how that still relates to power. That still relates to where they see themselves on the continuum and what they feel like will help themselves move to a place that they think is a better position on that continuum because nobody wants to really feel weak, right? I mean, we instinctively know this idea when we use catchphrases like small man syndrome or small dog syndrome, right? It may have started because of historical figures like Alexander the Grey, but we get the idea that feeling small can make a person strive to prove themselves, to feel big, to feel not powerless but powerful. So really our relationship with power comes down to how powerful and powerless we feel and how we react to that both in ourselves and reaction to the power of others. Now we ought to consider the enemy in all of this. Of what we know of the devil, he also had a distorted view of power or at least or at least where he saw himself on the scale of power, is not where he wanted to be. We can also see that when he tempted Jesus, one of his ploys was the promise of power. He assumed that Jesus would want it. And the truth is that maybe even if you are at a healthy place in your relationship with power, that power could tempt us if it's packaged in the right way. Maybe we all have our weaknesses in this way. So let's go deeper again. See, our distorted relationship with power naturally affects how we interpret this verse and therefore 
how we relate to the Holy Spirit. And this is where it really, really matters. Here are just some of the ways that I've seen our relationship with the power of the Holy Spirit be affected by our distorted relationship with power. Number one, sometimes the obsession with revival is actually related to this distorted relationship with power. That's an interesting point. And I feel like some people are going to be like, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute, slow down. Okay, I will. I find revivals to be one of the most interesting topics. I find I find revivals to be one of the most interesting topics. I actually really like hearing about them and reading about them and there's so many cool stories that have actually happened over the years and and not all of them are historical, right? There's stuff that happens in the present day too. But there is nothing in scripture that has instructed us that revivals are the goal of our faith experience. Now, it's true that there are things that happen in the Bible that definitely look like a revival, even if the word itself wasn't used, right? But the truth is, Jesus is actually pretty clear on what we are supposed to be doing in this life. We are meant to participate with the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification or, you know, becoming more like Jesus. We are to love our neighbor and God, and we are meant to make disciples, They are probably the big ticket items in our faith, right? Of all the things that we are supposed to be doing. We're supposed to serve God, love God, whatever, right? Revival is not actually essential to any of those activities. Just have a think about that for a second. Does revival actually need to happen for any of those things to happen? No, right? Like it's not actually critical to the process of doing any of those things. So why do we want revival then? Why why does it get talked about so much? Like it's the epitome, like it's the thing. Why were people flocking from across America to go to this revival that was in Ashbury, which the truth is if I was there, I'd probably do the same thing. But you, you get what I'm saying. Why do we want it? I know there are some that want revival because they want to see salvation, But when you consider the percentage of people who share the gospel, it can't actually be that many. It can't be the number that equates to the number that are interested in seeing revival. I've searched my own heart in times past and I realize it's because I want to see God's power. That's it. That's it. I just want to see God's power. I know he's powerful. I want to see it. Do I need to see it? (sighs) Well, probably not. I mean, I can observe his power every day. I mean, look at creation. Is that not testimony of his power? That may be the biggest testimony of his power, that we exist, that this world exists, that everything around us has actually been created by someone with thought and planning and et cetera, et cetera. Do I need to see God's power? Probably not. The point is, often we are so distracted wanting to see the power of God through revivals that we miss the fact that they are not critical to us getting on with God's work, whom he empowers us daily with the Holy Spirit to do if we choose it. That's one way I have seen this distorted relationship with power, this idea that we got to see it, that we want to see it, we want to experience it, we want to feel it, affect our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Number two, we become dissatisfied with what the Holy Spirit is doing. 
Okay, similarly to revivals, we can treat manifestations and signs and wonders as the goal of our faith. This is probably especially true for Pentecostals, but often we rate the value of a gathering, of a service, of a conference on whether there were manifestations of the Spirit. Now, for Pentecostals, have you noticed that there seems to be a significant reduction in people falling under the Spirit? I know things just kind of got weird. Sorry, guys. But now I don't know if the leaders of various movements have had anything to do with this. I mean, maybe they got together and they were like, you know what? People who are not Christian come in and they get freaked out by this stuff. Maybe we should stop doing it. I don't know. I have no idea if there was some kind of conversation that happened. But, you know, there was a time when people used to fall under the spirit. Okay, maybe in America it happens too. I don't know. But in Australia... I've just noticed that in churches that are typically Pentecostal, it doesn't happen. Now, I know there's some cynics out there and what they're probably thinking is that, no, the preachers just stopped pushing as hard as they used to. Well, shame on you, cynics. I'll just make it clear here that I have definitely fallen under the spirit and it was genuine. Okay. So then why has it stopped? I know that some Pentecostals would probably say it's because of like the fact that we're just not walking with the spirit anymore or there's some kind of lack or we are not doing enough or we're not being, I don't know, other stuff, like things that kind of point to the fact that we're not good enough, right? But I'll tell you what I think. We made the falling under the spirit the epitome. There was a culture that I noticed and Even I began to fall, interesting choice of words, into that kind of culture subconsciously where I believed that if falling didn't happen, that the spirit didn't really move. It wasn't enough that a person could feel the Holy Spirit or that a message was clearly spirit-led. It didn't matter that someone had an incredible word or, you know, other things that happen when the Holy Spirit is there. If the falling didn't happen, the spirit wasn't there. (laughs) I mean, how do we have the audacity to rate the works of the spirit? That how can we even call one act more spiritual than another? And yet we do it subconsciously all the time. The Holy Spirit doesn't answer to us. Like we need to get this. The Holy Spirit doesn't answer to us. Do you recall earlier in the episode, I mentioned the first two acts of the Holy Spirit. The first was during creation as he hovered over the waters. And the second was the enabling of craftsmanship for one person in building the tabernacle. Now we know the Holy Spirit's presence would have been there throughout the narrative, right? But that's the first two occurrences we read about. The Holy Spirit is capable of a lot of things and manifestations are not necessarily the epitome of what he can do. There are promptings happening every day on account of the Holy Spirit that are keeping the Lord's people safe. The Holy Spirit is constantly speaking through his word, guiding us, encouraging us, even comforting us. The Holy Spirit is revealing God to us, which may just be the most significant part of what the Holy Spirit does. And of course, the Holy Spirit is testifying through us every day to Jesus in us as a proof that he is very much alive 
and present and concerned and active in this world and his people. These things are miraculous. We have no right to be dissatisfied with what the Holy Spirit is doing. Do we pine for more? Yes, but not because the Holy Spirit is not moving, but because we want to get better at engaging and aligning with what the Spirit is already doing. That's the bit that we should be dissatisfied with, our alignment and our engagement. So this next point I'm about to say is really an extension of the one that I just said, but it's my final thought on how power distorts our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Number three, we can depersonalize the Holy Spirit. Now, I know not every person nor denomination attests to a doctrine that states the Holy Spirit as a person, right? And that's cool. I'm hoping my specific stance doesn't discount the principle of this point. Because even if you don't believe the Holy Spirit is a person, we recognize that the Holy Spirit has like individual, I guess could be a word, value. It has value. The Holy Spirit has value. We see in scripture that the Holy Spirit can speak and lead and guide and all of that, right? When I say depersonalize the Holy Spirit, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like we think that the Holy Spirit is like Siri, right? Siri has no ability to think on its own in in essence, right? Siri responds to your commands and ceases to be active unless it's been called on. Sometimes we treat the Holy Spirit like he is Siri. We assume that he's simply there to respond to our demands. Now, I'll tell you where I get this from, right? I'm not just making that opinion because I think, because I just think it. I, I have It's derived from something. It's derived from something I've observed. Because of my time on church leaderships, I've had this pleasure, I guess, of being a part of the pre-service prayer meeting and then the after-service review. And I can tell you, the Holy Spirit is often treated like a performing acrobat. Now that might sound quite, I don't know, just not nice, but hear me out, okay? Because the tough stuff is the stuff we really need to listen to sometimes. We want the Spirit to move and we invite the Holy Spirit in and for the presence of the Holy Spirit to be felt and we sometimes want manifestations and we usher in the presence of the Holy Spirit with our worship And we don't want to break the flow so the MC has to handle the transition well as though we could easily break the influence of the spirit. And then we do altar calls. We want the spirit to move people to respond. Now, of course, we want the spirit to be present in our services and in every aspect of our services, but there's more to this than we think. So the Hindu faith that I was brought up in, or at least the version of Hinduism I was brought up in, had a lot to do with bribing the gods, which is probably quite similar to God's often observed in the Bible, like Baal and Ishtar and whoever else, right? The idea is that you coax the gods with your actions. So you might become a vegetarian. You might pray a certain number of times a week. You might light an incense. You might go to the temple. And all of these things are a method to coax the gods to do your will. Now, I'm really sad to say, But I feel like sometimes the way we approach the Holy Spirit, especially in our services, can be a lot like that. It's like the Holy Spirit is this passive being that we need to coax into doing our will. We say the right things. You know, we say, Holy Spirit, we invite you. Holy Spirit, 
We are ushering in your presence through our worship. Oh, let's get this transition right so we don't break what's happening in the atmosphere. This is the kind of language that happens, right? Because the Holy Spirit's just going to leave if you don't manage that atmosphere, right? Like, what? I don't know. Anyway, now I might be exaggerating in some ways for effect, but A, why do we have such a fickle view of the Holy Spirit who is constant and present within us and through us? And B, how dishonoring of us that we treat the Holy Spirit like this? He is not here for our doing to accomplish our will. But the fact is, I hope this is true for at least most of us, but we wouldn't treat a person like this. Imagine if you were to treat a spouse like this. All week, we've practically ignored them, every now and then texting them to help us out with our daily activities. Then once a week, we ask them to come to church and we open the front door of the church and say, hey, wife. I invite you in. Then with music, we lead her down the church aisle and say, come in, have your way. By the way, could you dance for our congregation? Not because your dancing is beautiful or even because I love you, but when you dance, it makes this kind of atmosphere that everybody likes. And when the activities on stage change, we quickly run back to our wife and say, oh, please, please don't leave. I I know this is all a bit clunky, but we we still want you. Just just yeah, just stay around. Please don't be shy. Then the service finishes, and we say, "All right, same time next week." Okay, clearly I'm being a bit facetious, but I'm trying to help us see that our treatment of the Holy Spirit doesn't demonstrate that we value the Holy Spirit. Okay, two more things on this, and then let's be done with it. I really want you to get this though. So you know how I know that we treat the Holy Spirit like a performing acrobat? Because most of us expect the Holy Spirit to perform on a Sunday but aren't able to make the connection that the same Holy Spirit is able to act all week through our everyday in everyday circumstances. If we value the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't isolate the Spirit to the Sunday But a lot of the time we do, and it's because we want the Spirit to perform certain things for us in that atmosphere. See, sadly, we actually judge the Holy Spirit very similarly to how we judge ourselves. We judge the Holy Spirit for what he does and not who he is. That's what we do to ourselves. We value our actions more than our presence. You see this in parenting. A parent will often rate their parenting according to what they do. But so much of parenting is actually about who you are and being present in who you are with your children. The doing doesn't necessarily improve the relationship you have with your kids. The same goes for the Holy Spirit. If we understood who the Holy Spirit is, if we explored scripture to understand what the Holy Spirit does and 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 the heart of the Holy Spirit, the way it leads and the way in which the Holy Spirit continues to serve us and carries out the acts of God's love to us, we would not have such a shallow view and treatment of the Holy Spirit. We would value the relationship we have with the Spirit and honor the Holy Spirit. We couldn't treat the Holy Spirit like Siri when we understand that this spirit within us was present and active at the creation of this world. 
we would see that the Spirit loves to give, that he speaks simultaneously to many people so that we all come together in one divine accord. We would see that the Spirit is gentle and strong. We would see that the Spirit never, ever leaves us. He will faithfully walk through this life, ensuring that we make it to heaven, attending to every tear and comforting every hurt. See, if I haven't made this clear before in this podcast, I want to make it absolutely painfully clear right now. The fact is that our motivations matter. The reason we do something really matters to God. Amazingly, God might still answer your prayers even when your motives aren't right, but that's just because he's awesome and he's patient. But the fact is still this, that our motives have always mattered. That's why God tells the Israelites that he is sick of their sacrifices in Isaiah 1. It's why God can't stand hypocrisy. Because God is far more interested in what is true and what is in our hearts than simply what we do and what we say and tell ourselves we think. Our motives when it comes to this power matters. Because in all ways, we are to emulate and move toward a Christ-like value system. And Jesus demonstrated for us time and again that though he had power, he surrendered it. He submitted his power and chose the position of humility. His motives were not self-glory, validation, manifestation, dominance, or power. Jesus was motivated by love and service. What motivates you? Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.